You are listening to the To and Out CFL Podcast, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. You know, they followed uh, a certain owner's uh, motives to switch to the, uh, to the fall. Um, and then I'll kind of blow up in their face. I don't know what happened to that guy. Um, that, that, yeah, I don't know. I heard he got into politics. I heard he got into politics. Grab some poutine and a double double. It's time for the Two and Out CFL podcast. Now they have to kick it out, and they do. Every week, Travis Curra. Does anybody still care about this podcast? And Brazilian Tide. Hunters are people too. Talk fantasy football. Bring you the latest in CFL news and sprinkle in a little bit of nonsense. Are you- Set. And we are a part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm Travis Cura. We will be joined by a guest today. His name is Ron Snyder. He is the author of The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief Brilliant History of the CFL Champion Franchise. Of course, this November, the 25th anniversary of of their 1995 Grey Cup win in Regina. So it'll be fun to revisit everything Baltimore Stallions. I hope your quarantine diets are doing okay. I've uh, sort of tried to change it up recently because (laughs) I have mastered, well, not mastered, but all things carbs. Did a couple batches of brownies. There was nothing funky in them. Don't get any ideas. Uh, a couple batches of banana bread, because let's face it, you buy bananas and then they go completely black. What else are you going to do to them? <laughs> Cover them in butter and sugar and make it into a delicious, sugary, awesome loaf. I've mastered uh, making some dinner rolls. Got the a recipe from uh, my wife's grandma. Man, my condo has been smelling so good nonstop. But uh, the pants getting a little bit tight lately <laughs> it's not good in the huddle with Karan Todd on the two and out podcast last week commissioner Ambrosi had a virtual town hall with uh, CFL fans it was mostly aimed at CFL season ticket holders because they made a number of announcements last week including that the Season will be uh, delayed until at least September. There's going to be no touchdown Atlantic. And the 2020 Grey Cup is going to look a whole lot different. Of course, it was said to be in Regina this November, 110th year of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, but that's not going to happen. Well, I, I guess Saskatchewan could technically host the Grey Cup still, but there's going to be no Grey Cup festival It's going to be the highest-ranked team after the regular season hosting the Grey Cup game. It could actually happen in December, too. So it was a loaded town hall. I got the sense, and I'm sure if you're listening, you have probably heard about all the announcements and maybe even watched the town hall as it went on. I got the sense there was a bit more of a positive tone than recent Events, I'd still say there probably is a 50-50 shot about us getting a at least a shortened CFL season. We still don't know how that's going to look. If American players are going to be crossing the border, how the payment structure is going to look for for the players, and also if they're maybe going to do hub cities, just having uh, all the games in a in a one or two different cities 
to get a season in and at least have something for the fans to look forward to. Lots, lots to digest and lots still needs to be figured out on that front. But the the season ticket holder thing, I've got season tickets in Regina and in Edmonton couple of different strategies from those two organizations and I'm sure all the organizations across the league have already been in touch with fans about what you can do with the summer games that have been canceled. I know I rolled them over to next season to get a nice little discount on a 2021 season tickets. But if you're a season ticket holder, uh, weigh all of your options. There's a lot of different ones, especially given out by Saskatchewan. Some uh, some perks were offered if you basically let the club keep the money from uh, the canceled games this summer. We're going to get to our guest, Ron Snyder, right away. This episode of Two and Out is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is a small local business, and like many of you, it has been closely monitoring the news on COVID-19 and the world's rapidly changing circumstances. While many of their team are currently working remotely, the way Park Power does business has not changed, and their commitment to exceptional customer service will remain. Find out more about Park Power's response to the COVID-19 outbreak at parkpower.ca. Joining us on the phone is Ron Snyder. He is the author of The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief, Brilliant History of the CFL Champion Franchise. Ron, I just have to start with why. Uh, This is actually this year coming up on the 25th anniversary of the Stallions winning the Grey Cup in Regina. But why dive in uh, to this book that you just released a couple months ago? Well, you know, thanks again. Thanks for having me on. Um, you know, this is something I've wanted to do for about uh, about ten years, and uh, you know, I was trying to convince people about just how unique this story was. Um, a little background on me: I'm a, a Baltimore native, and I was you know, a teenager during the time when the Stallions um, were in town. And for people my age, that was really our first. A uh, chance to enjoy a football team of our own. I was, you know, not even six years old when the, the Baltimore Colts left uh, for Indianapolis, and you know the the, the Ravens arrived here um, in 1996. I'm sure we'll talk about that as 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 this discussion goes on. But there was just something special about that team, something unique, the way that whole situation played out, um, and just you know what they were able to accomplish in just a short amount of time. Yeah, it was nuts. Like, you know, two straight Grey Cups, they win one. That's absolutely crazy. And, you know, I know they, they didn't have to follow the same roster rules that the other teams did, but, I mean, to still be an expansion team and do that is, is something phenomenal that I don't think we'll see again. Right, and, and you know, I, I, we'll talk about it, sure, about the the uh, roster balance as well. But, I mean, most of those players, look, these were guys that, you know, for the most part, had – quality CFL careers before they arrived in Baltimore and quality CFL mm-hmm. careers after they left Baltimore. So these were all, you know, CFL veterans for the most part. Um, and it was a team that was just built the right way. Yes, I mean, they didn't have to have the import 
full on effect. But again, these were, uh, I mean, these were players that understood the Canadian brand of football. Mm-hmm. So I, I know we're a CFL podcast, but I, I kind of want to start with a little bit of the NFL history uh, in Baltimore because it does play a big part of the, the Stallions eventually coming to town. Uh, Robert Ursay acquires the LA Rams in 1972. Later that day, swaps franchises with, with Rosenblum, who was the then owner of the Baltimore Colts. I can't really think of any other franchise swaps like this like that's ever really kind of happened. Do you know what prompted the swap or is it just one of those things that Ursay was probably pretty drunk at the time and just decided to <laughs> sign some paperwork? Well, I, I know a lot of it had to do with the fact that I know Rosenblum you know, wanted to get out West. And, um, you know, I think, uh, it was just the way that the, the things kind of evolved and, uh, Ursay was a unique owner to say the least. And, you know, I think he had grander plans of, you know, leaving Baltimore before, you know, she even arrived here. So, you know, I don't think he ever anticipated uh, making Baltimore's home long-term. I mean, I could be wrong, but, you know, look, uh, again, uh, as someone who who uh, has memories of those uh, uh, Mayflower trucks pulling out in the, in the snowy night in March 1984, you know, I'm not going to um, uh, give, give uh, diversity the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and like you mentioned, he, he, he didn't really feel like he wanted to be there. The Colts' last game in Baltimore was December of 83 in front of you know, 20,148 fans. And in today's NFL climate, that just seems impossible for the numbers to be that low. Uh, was that the final nail in the coffin, so to speak? Or like you said, like had this decision been made way long before this? I mean, I think it's a decision. I mean, he was going to move somewhere. He teased it for long time but i don't think the fans ever really believed that the colts were going to leave town until those vans moved to, those moving trucks moved mm-hmm. out um i mean this was you know the home of johnny unitas art donovan lenny moore burt jones raymond barry uh you know bubba smith i mean you know the list goes on some of the greatest football players in the history of the game uh you know made baltimore home you know Balt the nfl was put on the map you know, many would say because of the 1958 championship game. So, I mean, this was a premier franchise that was ran into the ground by, a, you know, an erratic owner at best. Um, <laughs> but I still think, you know, fans didn't believe that this was going to happen until it actually happened. Well, and in 1985, you know, professional football does come back somewhat. Uh, a USFL team, you know, Philadelphia moves to quote-unquote Baltimore. They still practice in Philly, play their games in College Park because the Orioles don't want anybody at Memorial. Uh, They were pretty much set up to fail from the start just with the way that they were set up, it seemed. Uh, You know, after they fold, or after the league folds, Baltimore attempts to get a bunch of teams uh, through relocation, and it just seemed to fall fall through every time. Uh, did the USFL experiment, so to speak, hurt the city in attempts to get another team? And it helped him now. I mean, I don't think so. I think, look, at, at 85, like the USFL, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, and I just got done reading uh, Football by, for a Buck uh, by Jeff Prom, which is a great book, by the way. I'm not, uh, I just happened to, to, to find that book very unique for the time. Um, you know, I, I don't think it hurt the NFL, their, their chances. Um, you know, the USFL, uh, kind of put the nail in its own coffin when they you know, when they mm-hmm. the NFL and they switched uh, 
you know they followed uh, a certain owner uh motives to switch to the uh, to the fall um and then I kind of blew up in their face I don't know what happened to that guy um, that that Yeah, I don't know either. I heard he got into politics. I heard he got into politics, but you know, we'll leave it at that. Um that's another podcast for another day. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think we have the time. Um, but again, you know, look, it was a, a, a if they had made it another year, the plan was for them to be able to you know, likely play in College Park. Um, mm-hmm. If USFL had, had made it, I mean, I'm mean, not College Park. It, it moved from College Park to, to Memorial Stadium. But again, it, that that was just the, the end of the USFL. And you know, again, just a, another one of the many graves of of uh, alternative football uh, leagues um, that have tried to you know uh, mm-hmm. establish themselves in the United States outside the NFL. Well, and they still owe Steve Young a bunch of money, but I don't think he'll ever. Oh my see gosh, it. some of the contracts were out of this world. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, Bobby Bonilla style, crazy. If they had, I mean, that was, you know, again, uh, that that the story of the USFL and and uh, is, has got some very unique and mm-hmm. unbelievable stories of, of the players that went through there and the legacy that uh, had, but. You know, again, they did bring another championship technically to Baltimore. So it was, you know, again, it was a uh, you know, yeah. another another championship that we 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 claim technically. Yeah, <laughs> technically, yes. Um, so they put a team in Charlotte. The NFL puts a team in Charlotte. They put a team in Jacksonville, and Baltimore again on left left just in the wind. They've they've tried so much and, and so many things to get a team. Was, were NFL owners just using Baltimore as a pawn, like saying like we could like there is a chance that they have that we could give them something? But I mean, look, uh, yeah. you, you touched upon. It. I mean, there was talk of uh, the the Cardinals moving before they moved from Phoenix uh, mm-hmm. from St. Louis to Phoenix. Uh, there was talk about the Bucks coming in in into town. Um, there was talk of the Rams possibly, ironically, moving here. Um, you know, there was there was lots of different teams that could have possibly moved here over that decade uh, before the Ravens arrived, and it seemed like you know they were kind of used as a as a leverage uh, for other um, cities. Um, and then again, you know, we felt like we had a great expansion uh, shot. Uh, kind of understood mm-hmm. Charlotte; it was a new market. You know, the the Hornets and the NBA had just kind of taken off there. Um, with, with Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning in that era. So there was a lot of, you saw the growth there in that market for sports and just in general. Um, but they never, we never thought that here in Baltimore that you know, Florida was going to get another team. Um, so Jacksonville kind of ticked us off. And at that point, mm-hmm. you know, we, there were a lot of fans who just said, you know, look, we, we've had enough. You know, we're, we're done with the NFL. We'll figure something out. I mean, Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner, famously told us to take the money that we put aside for a stadium and build a museum, and that made us even angrier. So, you know, <laughs> and that kind of kind of led us to where we're, where I think we're heading at this point. Mm-hmm. So we we fast forward to '94, and Jim Spiros is awarded a CFL expansion team. The CFL has decided to expand into the U.S. Uh, the first decision that they make is to call it the Baltimore CFL Colts, and it, they're trying to marry the history of football in the city of the new team. I totally get it. Uh, but the NFL files a lawsuit to stop it. Uh, some felt that they knew the name would never work, and it was just used as a mar- marketing tactic to get people excited about the new team. 
Like, does that, does that make sense looking back as to what, how everything went down, or was it just something they thought they could actually do? You, 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 that decision adds to the to the mystique and the, the legend of that team here in town. Yeah. Um, look, uh, Baltimore has got a, uh, an inferiority complex. We're a blue-collar town. You know, for many people, it feel like oh, we're just a, a stopping point between Washington and Philadelphia and New York. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we were the, the whipping boy of the NFL, and you know, they took our Colts. They didn't give us a team. And then, you know, Jim Spira and the other comes to town and says, we're going to name Baltimore NFL Colts. And, you know, we're like, well, that's great. You know, that's awesome. What else, you know, what else are we going to call the team here? You know, we didn't, we didn't think there would be an issue. There was the BC Lions in the, uh, in the CFL already, right? So yeah. there were plenty yeah. of other Colts. There was plenty of other teams named the Colts around around here and then they lose the uh the lawsuit and then they have to play you know the first season without a name is call themselves the Baltimore CFLers so and, weird <laughs> you know that just kind of added to the whole mystique of, of the team is us against them I mean you couldn't ask for better PR I mean this was you know for those you know, this was before the internet but this was this was a story that was in the Washington Post New York Times mm-hmm. you know, wow. CNN ESPN I mean this was this was all over the place. This was mainstream news, you know, and, and it was Baltimore against the world. And, you know, I think that only rallied the city around this team even more. Yeah, I don't even know if the CFL could have even planned it that way. It just kind of worked out the way it did, almost a perfect storm a little bit. Um, now the CFL is sort of aired on ESPN2 and streamed on ESPN+. Plus. You kind of talked about the, the Baltimore story getting mainstream coverage back then, but how was the TV broadcast? Like, How uh, did you access the games? Well, um, you know, they they did have uh, actually a good bit of games on ESPN two at the time. Uh, Gus Johnson actually uh, was 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 on the call for many of those games on ESPN two, and then we had a lot of local and regional broadcasts as well from our uh, local uh, over the over the air stations, uh, WMAR here in in town, and you know the regional sports network. Uh, by the time with home team sports, eventually evolved into. Um, you know, Comcast Sportsnet and all the Comcast stations now. So, you know, it was kind of the the uh, ancestor of, you know, of the Comcast sports networks. Um, but, you know, a lot of those games were on, on TV in one way or the other, whether it be over the air cool, um, or on cable and then on uh, radio as well. Uh, Bruce Cunningham, who was the uh, who was a longtime anchor here in town, was, was the radio voice of, of the team as well. So there was plenty of ways to watch it and listen to it. You already sort of mentioned that uh, the the players that came to town knew the CFL. They were successful before and after uh, the Stallions. But the first football decision was hiring Don Matthews and Jim Pop. Both, I think, are considered CFL legends now. Um, How important were these hirings to establishing a successful franchise right off the bat? I mean, it was critical. Um, you know, you look at some of the coaches that were brought in uh, to the other expansion teams, Ron Meyer in Las Vegas, uh, Pepper Rogers in Memphis, uh, Forrest Gregg in Shreveport. Uh, these were you know, NFL castles who didn't really understand the, uh, the CFL game. Uh, Pepper Rogers famously said, I like everything about the CFL except the rules. So, you know, that was uh, 
that was part of uh, you know the frustration for some of the other players is that they didn't understand the nuances of the CFL. I mean, Don Matthews, who could arguably be considered the greatest coach in, in CFL history. I mean, he had a great uh, run throughout his career. I mean, he coached teams to five overall, you know, to five Grey Cups and advanced to four others, and he had 11 division titles and, you know, anywhere from you know, coaching in B.C. to Toronto to Saskatchewan prior yeah. to uh, coming to Baltimore. So, you know, he and then, you know, coached in Edmonton and, and Montreal. So he, he, you know, made the rounds, understood the CFL, understood how to build a CFL roster. And Jim Pop at the time, um, you know, again, I think many would could, could arguably consider him the greatest general manager in CFL history. Um, you know, he... You know, won the Grey Cup, so he took the, the Baltimore team to two Grey Cups, wins one in 95. And in his time with the Alouettes, they win three Grey Cups, advance to four others. He wins a Grey Cup in Toronto in his first year there. So, you know, he, he was a young, up-and-coming person at the time, and it was the perfect mix of experience and youth and understanding that, you know, this was an idea to build not with names, you know, not with attracting just players who were names or may have been NFL cast-offs or big-damn college guys, but people that understood the CFL. And, you know, again, it was a blue-collar team with a blue-collar attitude in a blue-collar town. And, and again, I think it was the perfect fit at the time. The first player they brought in was Tracy Ham, and he did have a disappointing season with Toronto, but obviously they still saw something still left in the tank. Was, was signing Ham... Uh, sort of a signal to other players around the league that, hey, these guys uh, mean business and they're going to be a good team to play for. Yeah, and I think in the, I mean, Ham had a, had several good years. That you look even after uh, you know going back up to Baltimore you know, with to Montreal after Baltimore, and I think his time in Toronto, you know, was an aberration at that point. It was a bad fit at a bad time, you know, um, and uh, you know, obviously. Uh, uh, Matthews was familiar with his game, and you know, I think Tracy brought him brought, brought the team instant credibility. Look, anytime you're building a football team, you, know, you got to have an offensive line, and you got to have a quarterback, you know, that, that's under under center to get people the ball. And Tracy Ham was just the right player at the right time. Again, this was all about perfect timing, making every right decision, um, and it started with Tracy Ham, who you know attracted a lot of the players that ended up coming to Baltimore. Now, you talked about sort of the Baltimore versus everyone else uh, mentality. And in the first season, the CFLers averaged almost 40,000 fans a game. Was the NFL looking at how many fans they were bringing in, you think? We'll talk a little bit more about that. But, yeah, I think it was definitely something people were looking at. I mean, you look, again, you think about the XFL, uh, this incarnation this year in the U.S., and look, I mean, it was doomed to fail with, with, the, with the coronavirus that led to the cancellation of the, of the league. But I mean, it was starting to gather a little bit of traction in some of those cities, um, and you know, they were getting fifteen, twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand fans a game for some of these XFL, and they were happy with it. Baltimore was getting twice that. Yeah, you know, they were getting forty thousand fans a game, um, and you know, it was just a, uh, you know, it was the lone city that had an NFL uh, legacy. You know, it was us against the world, and they were really starting to. Um, I think that that played into it a lot. And you know, I, I, 
understanding history, you look at the XFL and which team had the biggest um, attraction for fans, and it was St. Louis, an NFL city mm-hmm. that lost its NFL team, and it had an yeah. us-against-the-world mentality. They embraced this new team um, and were really excited about having football back in their town. From your point of view, uh, you said you were a teenager during this time. How was uh, the atmosphere at these games? You know, ironically, I never got to an actual oh, game okay, during that okay. time. Okay, okay, yeah. But I did watch them all on t- on TV, and and it was look, it was a, an exciting time. I mean, my buddies and I, we would get together and we would watch the games, but you know, just like you would, you know, the, the NFL today, uh, fans would today. We were excited to have football back, and it was. It was good football. I mean, look, the, that first year, the announcer would go, you're Baltimore CFL, and, you know, he couldn't say anything, but everyone would yell Colts, and all the old Colts fans were going okay. CLLCS. <laughs> Johnny Unitas and, and Art Donovan and all those guys were often on the sidelines. You know, they did a good job. They, they cool. brought the band from the, the, the Baltimore Colts marching band, which is now the Ravens marching band played there. Um, you know, if anyone has seen uh, the the ESPN 30 for 30 uh, on the on the Colts marching band, uh, unbelievable, um, one of the best 30 for 30s you can see. Um, so you know, look, there was excitement, and the team was good. I mean, you know, I mean, it was it was a good team. You know, if this team, you know, if they do all this and the team is horrible, then nobody remembers them. They're just the, yeah. the Memphis Mad Dogs, the Las Vegas Posse, the Shreveport Pirates. You know the the Sacramento Gold Miner Gold, yeah. So, you know, it, 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 but they're good. Um, you know, and 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 that adds to their legend as well. All honesty, nineteen ninety four was the perfect storm for for Baltimore to get a football team back, even though it was only the CFL uh, and not the NFL like they wanted. But the MLB went on strike. Uh, you know, if you grew up in Baltimore, there was no way you were cheering for the Redskins. Uh, the college programs had very little interest. Not a lot of people supported them. It was obviously – like how important was it being the only game in town? Like it it was the place to be with, with Camden Yards being empty. Right. And, and look, uh, uh, um, Camden Yards at that point in time, I mean, Cal Ripken was still a year away from breaking the street, but, but Camden Yards was mm-hmm. – it was the hottest ticket in town. They were getting – they were selling out 40,000 fans a night. Mm-hmm. Um, the team and they were good. good back then. You know, it was uh, they were getting yeah. ready to go into that, that that nice run in the late, you know, the mid '90s, uh, where they were really good. They were a solid, competitive team. And of course, Camden Yards was was new. Um, they go away. Um, again, no NBA team here in Baltimore. Uh, college football. Look, we have Navy here in Maryland. Uh, University of Maryland is still an afterthought for the most part here in, in the Baltimore region. Mm-hmm. Navy has been great for most of the last twenty years, but. At that point, they were in a down period. Um, we have some one double A teams, uh, or football championship subdivision teams. Now, I guess they call them, and you know, including Towson, which is my my alma mater, um, and Morgan State. Again, some some, but again, those were teams that were in down times as well. Um, so, really, if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted quality sports, the Stallions, the CFLers, you know, the CFLers in that first season were it. <laughs> <laughs> and they go 12 and 6 in that first year, make it all the way to the Grey Cup, NBC, lose a heartbreaker to Lions, controversial catch call in the late in the fourth quarter. We we don't have to get into it. We all know that it probably wasn't actually a catch. But Baltimore comes into that game as the home team technically being the higher seed. 
but it was basically an entire country against them wanting to keep the Grey Cup in Canada. And, and you know, they lose very hostile environment in BC. How, how much did that fuel the team coming into that '95 season? Oh, it, it was, that was their motivation, um, and I, you know, I yeah. think that was one of the things that I learned about writing the book and it is maybe because I was like it was us against the world at that point in time I didn't realize mm-hmm. how much of a cultural issue it was for an American team to um, win the Grey Cup you know to, to compete yet alone win the Grey Cup um, because look I mean we just saw at that point in time Toronto wins the World Series that year right the or the year before right. um, you know we have the Raptors winning the NBA title you know um, so, you know, I guess I, but I didn't realize just how, you know, Canadian, how attached Canadians were to the Grey Cup at that point in time. Um, right. but, you know, they came in, they wanted to make, you know, again, it was, it was again, us against the world again. Um, and they felt like they were a bad call away and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a Louis Pasaglia field goal at the end of the game. Uh, from winning winning the Grey Cup in their first year, so they bring back most of the same roster. And they make some changes along the way, but you know, they end up um, you know putting together one of the greatest individual seasons in CFL history. Yeah, and that next season, they you know they have the second best record ever at fifteen and three. Uh, they finish first in the South Division, home field advantage throughout the playoffs. The first playoff game is was it December or November fourth. November 6th, or December, sorry. On the 6th, it's announced that the Cleveland Browns are moving to town. Or, yeah, no, yeah, November, yeah. And then on the 6th, it's it's announced that Cleveland Browns are going to be moving to Baltimore and start playing the 96th season. How much did that impact the coverage and support for the team, you know, through the South Division Final and the Grey Cup? Well, I mean, literally it was like night and day. Um, you know, yeah. they announced, again, they, they, they have the, they, they beat the Blue Bombers, what, 36 to 21 in that first game. Um, small, ironically, the smallest crowd in, in, in team history, 21,000 fans. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a couple games day before that they announced that you know, the, the Browns are coming to Baltimore. And it was like people, they forgot about them overnight. Um, uh. for the most part. And again, the, there are some, there were some. There still are some diehard fans, and we can talk about that you know, to this day. That, that that you know support the stallions no matter what. Um, but I mean, they, they did manage to get thirty thousand fans. You know how many of those tickets were given away, and how many tickets? You know how inflated that number was. You know is up for debate. They get thirty thousand fans. They they win. You know they beat the Texans twenty one to eleven. And, you know, nobody cared. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it, the, the media was covering, at that point, a lot of the media was just covering um, not just the fact that the Browns were coming, but all the legal stuff that followed. They had, you know, sending media to Cleveland and looking into all the legal stuff that was going on and everything else. You know, it, I mean, it just sucked all of the media coverage up. Um, and, um, you know, then they go and they win the... The the Grey Cup you know, pretty handily thirty seven to twenty over to Calgary. Um, they come home and apparently they had a you know they, they you know they had a celebration at our Inner Harbor downtown in downtown Baltimore, 
and then they moved away to Montreal. And I don't even I didn't even remember the celebration down you know after afterwards because it seemed like they won the game and then I never heard from them again. Mm-hmm. It's such a crazy story here because yeah they're pulling in forty thousand fans and then almost like in an instant it's over and it's important to remember that in nineteen ninety five. There was a thought that that Grey Cup in Regina could be the last Grey Cup ever. Um, and the CFL was in dire straits. And I, I heard reports, people talking that Grey Cup week, that it was almost like people talking about CFL memories. And it, it, it might be gone after this. And it was gone out of Baltimore. Was that confirmed with Cleveland coming to town? Or like you, did they just fade away? I, I think if, if the Cleveland didn't come to Baltimore, I mean, I, I don't know if they would have lasted forever, but they definitely would have lasted beyond um, 1995 here in Baltimore. I mean, they, I think they were set to host the Grey Cup in 97, I believe, 96 or 97 um, here in Baltimore. Um, and, and, you know, I think if they hadn't come at that point, I mean, everyone, you know, again, when, when it didn't work in Baltimore, with Baltimore – wasn't going to work um, as far as U.S. expansion of the CFL. It wasn't going to work anywhere. Um, there was talk about yeah. maybe moving to Virginia. Um, you know, there was talk about maybe having, having you know uh, San Antonio hanging on, uh, but Memphis pulled out. Uh, Shreveport pulled out. Uh, they had all types of ownership issues. And really, look, that you know those those uh, expansion fees uh, was what kept the CFL alive in many ways. Yeah. Uh, they needed an infusion of cash, um, and they didn't really care where they got it from. And that was part of the issue. Was that, you know, for the most part, um, you know, Memphis had a solid owner. Uh, San Antonio had a decent owner. But, um, of course, Baltimore had a solid ownership. But, again, there was, even the, Baltimore was having some financial you know, issues, and, and maybe they could have turned a corner given another year or two. But, you know, again, it was when, when Baltimore pulls out, I mean, that was pretty much the linchpin that kept the whole U.S. expansion uh, together. It just wasn't going to work otherwise. And there's a lot of other reasons why, you know, that expansion didn't work. And, you know, I, I purposely, you know, didn't read um, Ed Will's book on, uh, uh-huh. you know, the whole CFL expansion until I got my book done because I, I wanted to make sure I, I looked at it from a fresh perspective. That's a great book as well if you're, if you're interested in that period of time in CFL football. Now, it, it was just in 2015 that the team, I, I read a great story in the Baltimore Sun online anyway, saying that the, the team finally got together and celebrated that win. Do you know much about that celebration in 2015? Um, yeah, I mean, it's in the book as well. You know, it's, it's mentioned in the book, there's a chapter in that. Um, you know, they got together for a... Um, like a, a celebration uh, at Towson University here in Baltimore. Uh, it was mostly players, a couple of fans, but it, it kind of came together pretty quickly. But they had a chance to finally kind of, you know, celebrate that victory. Um, they all came into town, and so many of them were there. Um, you know, uh, you know Pringle and Ham and Armstrong and Sharp Ordonish and Josh Miller and Jim Pop and. You know, I think uh, um, I think Don Matthews was pretty sick at that point in time. 
Um, and of course, unfortunately, it's passed away a few years back. Um, but again, it was it was it was a nice way to kind of come full circle. Yeah. No, just to touch on, you know, Canada cheering against the Colts. I was or the Stallions. Sorry, I was not one of them because they were playing Calgary and grew up an Edmonton <laughs> Oilers fan. So there was no way that I was going to be cheering for the Stamps. And that that Great Cup is probably my earliest CFL memory. You know, watching with my with my mom and my grandpa and everything. Like it would it was cool because it was a team that you know beat Calgary, but it was also a team that wasn't Canadian. It just kind of added to the lore of, of of you know those two seasons in Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And again, these were players that that fans of the CFL rooted for yeah. before mm-hmm. they got they came to Baltimore and after they left Baltimore. I mean, these yeah. you know again the legacy of this team. I mean, again, Tracy Ham, Hall of Famer, Mike Pringle, arguably the greatest player in CFL history. Um, you know, Don Matthews, Hall of Famer, Alfred Swack Payton, Hall of Famer. You know, now mm-hmm. known for more for for son playing in the NBA, but. You know, again, uh, characters, solid, and a lot, a lot of players went down to have solid CFL careers. Chris Armstrong, wide receiver, defensive back Irvin Smith, um, you know, Neil Fort. Um, again, other players went on to, to play in the NFL, like Sharp Bordanish, you know, O.J. Bragance, you know, only player in football history to win a Grey Cup and a Super Bowl championship in the same city. Yeah, wow. You know, again. So they had, know, they had a, Joe Horn and he couldn't Paul make the team. That was an intern on that team. I mean, it was, you know, yeah. this team's legacy expands beyond so much more than just those two seasons. Yeah. And they have, they had Joe Horn in 94 and he couldn't even crack the lineup. Right. Like it, it just showed the depth that they were able to, that they were able to uh, create. Right. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, Joe Horn and Wayne Corbett were both players that yeah. went on to have great NFL careers, couldn't make it here in Baltimore. So, you know, that, that's, that's another that just shows you how good this team was. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there was a group, I, I, I'm sure there's still some people that feel this way, that seen cheering for a new NFL franchise in the city as hypocritical after quote-unquote stealing a franchise from another city after, you know, the way it all went down in 1984. Uh, and especially one as storied as Cleveland was, it been the, it, you know, it was an integral part of that league, uh, you know, for so long. Uh, how did the, how long did those feelings last? Is, is there still some that want nothing to do with the Ravens? Uh, and like you said too, there's still that diehard group of Stallions fans. It seems too. Well, look, uh, that was it. it's interesting. I mean, um, there are a small segment of fans that were Colts, Baltimore Colts fans. That will never they never embrace the Ravens because again they didn't mm-hmm. want to feel like be hypocrites. Um, the Colts have been in Indianapolis longer than they were in Baltimore at this point. Um, most yeah. football fans don't remember football in Baltimore. With you know, most football fans, they barely you know looking especially the younger ones. You know, it's been twenty five years. Don't remember the Stallions being here. Right? There's a lot of younger fans that we had a CFL team here. Really, yeah. that was that's crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, so, you know, I think time kind of heals all wounds. Um, I think, uh, again, most, and I would tell you, myself being one of them, felt like there was a, there was some difference between the Colts leaving and the Browns coming here. Um, when the Browns left Cleveland, they left their history behind. Uh, right. You know, the Ravens started from scratch. Um, they... We're guaranteed an expansion team within three years. So there was no doubt that football was coming back to Cleveland. 
Um, you know, so this is, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's not a fair comparison. I mean, again, there is a little bit of hypocrisy there, but again, if you think of Baltimore, what Baltimore went through, again, they lost the team. Uh, Baltimore tried to get another team to relocate here. Tried, went through the expansion process. You know, they went through everything that they were asked to do, we were asked to do here as a city, and, you know, again, eventually the NFL understood that there was a good package here, you know, economic-wise. Um, they saw, mm-hmm. again, I, I don't think it, you know, everyone will say, well, the reason they came here was because of the stallions. Well, I think it was icing on the cake, but there was a great economic package here. There was money for a stadium. Um, there was a legacy here. Um, you know, the, 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 there was, you know, there, there was good reason for a team to come here. Um, now, again, I think the Stallions attracting 35,000, 40,000 fans a game maybe expedited that a little bit, you know, maybe confirmed everything. You know, I think yeah. some fans will tell you, well, that's the reason they came out. It, it wasn't the only reason, but it was a reason. Now, uh, after the 95 Grey Cup, uh, the Stallions moved to Montreal. The Alouettes are back. But with the roster rules, keeping the whole team together, it, it, it wasn't going to be done. But that core really just went to Montreal, and they uh, kept being successful. They ended up winning a Grey Cup there in uh, 2000. Too. So, so the lasting legacy or the, the the effects of the Stallions were, like you said, continued to be spread out across the CFL uh, all over the league. The legacy left by this team is pretty cool uh, when it was only around for two seasons. Like you said, there are diehard fans. I still see them. Uh, the spirit of Edmonton Great Cup Party. There'll be a Baltimore Stallions flag in the air above the crowd because there's still some diehards that come to the Great Cup. Uh, how do you look at that Baltimore Stallions legacy? Again, I you know I talked a lot about you know again it goes beyond those two years. I I, I think Balt you know that, that team provided a bridge between the Colts and the Ravens here in Baltimore. It showed Baltimore and a new generation of football fans how to be football fans and support a team. Uh-huh. It also again provided a bridge to fans in Montreal. You know. There was a, you know, again, there there was a, a, a you know, a staggered legacy of football in Montreal, um, and, and again, it took some time. Um, again, and then, you know, I know it kind of goes up and down, but look, they had a great run there for a long time, um, and, and really attracted some fans. Once they moved out of Olympic Stadium, um, you know, after several years, and and, and kind of found their stride, um, you know, and then. So the, the, there's this legacy of great football, of great memories, um, of great tradition. Um, again, I have fans. Uh, again, there's a social media group, there's a Facebook group that has several hundred fans. Wow. That, you know, some some are from some are a lot of them from Baltimore. But, you know, I think you know as much uh, um, angst as there wasn't for many ca- Canadians. I've had a lot of people reach out to me from Canada saying. Hey, we love the Stallions. We love those players. It's an interesting time, you know. Um, I'm learning about them through, you know, the, through through YouTube and the internet and you know, books like mine. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a unique time. And again, those players are, are players that that resonate for many football fans in, in both connect, connect Canada and the U.S. Again, Mike Pringle. You know, it, it, when you you can't, you, you're talking about the history. Of, you know, you're talking about the greatest CFL players of all time. You know, he's at the top of the list. I mean, you tell me a better running back mm-hmm. in the CFL than, than Mike Pringle. 
Um, you know, you tell me, you know, how many coaches there are that are better than Don Matthews was. Yeah. Um, you know, Jim Pop again, you know, had some struggles at the end, both in Montreal and in Toronto. But tell me who had a better, you know, how many, how many general managers have had a better run than Jim Pop? Um, you know, and I, I, I hope to see him, you know, working uh, for another team soon. I hope the league, you know, with all this going on with the coronavirus. I mean, I know it's kind of. Writing this book, you know, I followed the CFL for several years afterwards. I kind of got away from it once the players that I followed here in Baltimore you know, retired. And but you know, I wrote this book and I've been trying to kind of reconnect with the CFL a little bit because it's a fun brand of football, but it's a scary time for the league as well, especially with yeah. everything else you know going on. You're, you're you know you're seeing um, you know the, the the television contract isn't there like it is for some of the other you know prof- big time professional sports leagues. So they're there's concern about what's going to happen long term with the league, but one thing I've learned is, as a student of history, is that um, the CFL finds a way to survive. I mean, it you know, does. <laughs> through the ups and downs, it's you know, look, you go back and look at the graveyard, look at the team, you know, U.S. expansion failed, but look at all the other football leagues: the USFL, the XFL twice, the Alliance of American Football, the UFL, you know, the Arena Football League. You know, all of these football leagues, for one reason or another. Have have failed, um, and the one that still keeps sticking around is the CFL. So you know, don't ever count the CFL out because there's a there's a a, a, um, a rabid fan base for those that support the league. Um, it's a it's a fun brand of football. It's got again, you know, everyone says, well, it's got some unique roles and different roles, and it says it's got different roles, but it's still football. And and you know, I can tell you from our time here in Baltimore, it was fun to watch. Coming up uh, in November, the 25th anniversary of the Baltimore Stallions winning the 1995 Grey Cup. The Baltimore Stallions, the brief, brilliant history of the CFL champion franchise. Ron Snyder, thanks so much for taking the time to bring us back to that time and uh, school us on the history of football in Baltimore. Do you have any more projects on the go we can look forward to uh, reading or watching for in the next uh, little while? Well, uh, I'm working on something. Um, I should have something formal soon. We're working on trying to get, you know, in this day and age, obviously, we can't get people together for a 25th reunion, but I'm working on some stuff for some digital, virtual reunion-type gatherings um, for the, for, this, for this team, for fans in Baltimore. Again, the 20th anniversary, you really didn't get a whole lot of fans who were able to come out, so I'm working on something where it brings some of these players together who – um, you know, can 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 share some of those stories, you know, in person, um, and, and interact with fans. Um, and, and again, look, a lot of again, this is only two years of their career. When I started writing this book, I reached out to Mike Gavigan, who was their PR director at the time, and you know, he said, as soon as I mentioned that to him, again, 23 years later, I had a dozen phone numbers and texts and my phone starts blowing up saying i want in i want in i want in." these guys to a t have said that the best two years of their careers now again they may have made more money they may have had more success you know they may have, have done a lot of other things in this world you know sharp Pordonis goes on the nfl josh miller the punter wins a super bowl with the patriots you know some players again hall of fame careers some people making a business to a T, they tell you the most fun, the most enjoyable two years of their professional lives were the two years that they played together. It's, it's, some, it's, a, it's, a, it's a special connection that these players had. They know that they did something special. And, you know, they love sharing their stories. They love the fans. 
uh, in Baltimore. So I'm hoping, working on something. Um, you know, hopefully I have an announcement pretty soon cool. about something that we can, uh, whether it be, you know, it'll be digital, you know, it'll be virtual, obviously, in the way, you know, we are in this day and age. Because um, I had a lot of a lot of local book signings and things like that 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 just didn't happen because and we're social distancing and and trying to be safe, obviously, in this this horrible pandemic. And yeah. and, and hopefully, you know, with with uh, much like uh, the Stallions twenty and the CFLers twenty five years ago when they were the only game in town, they provided um, fans with some fun sports memories. You know, I'm trying to do that a little bit again this time around. Was we're we're we're, we're trying to look for distractions, trying to think of ways to kind of get us through this tough, difficult time that so many of us are facing. And you know, again, I, I hope uh, um, then I hope to announce something soon, and uh, look forward to the next couple couple weeks. And it should be fun. I don't want to get too far away from baseball or from football. Sorry, but did you also write a book on the Orioles? I thought I saw that on Amazon. I wasn't sure. I did. I wrote a book. It came out last year. It's called A Season to Forget, the story of the 1988 yes. Baltimore Orioles. That, that, is my favorite, that is my favorite Orioles team because they were so bad. <laughs> as, as a Jays fan, as a Jays fan, it made it so much better. Yeah, Ryan, because I started that book in about 2016. Uh, they just made the wild card. Oh, and, yeah. uh, my, my, ed, my, my publisher says, wow, that's a, that's a horrible thing. It's an amazing story. If anyone can write a story about the World Series winner, well, yeah. tell me about getting, try to get people to talk about a team that went 0 21. I said, don't worry. They'll never be worse than they were. In 1988, and then in 2018, whoops! I got a lot of they, the, the team was the team won on opening day, but they had the worst record in team history. They were even worse than they were yeah. in 1988. So wow. that brought back a lot of memories about that team. So I, ironically, it helped uh, help book sales a little bit. <laughs> Ron, uh, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us, and uh, you take care and stay safe. Okay. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you for the support. And, again, um, books available on Amazon, available on McFarland Publishing, and, again, wherever books are sold. Thanks again to Ron Snyder. He is the author of The Baltimore Stallions, the brief, brilliant history of the CFL champion franchise. Make sure you pick up a a copy of that one, either digitally or uh, make an order for it and get that bad boy in your hands. Got to tell you about Pod Power. And ATB is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, we are going to give a Pod Power shout out to the shared mic. It is Edmonton's first unscripted intergenerational podcast. I love the idea of this. The show connects two people of different ages and stages to interview each other about shared life experiences. It's hosted by age-friendly Edmonton, a partnership between the city of Edmonton and the Edmonton Seniors Coordinating Council. Find the shared mic wherever you get your podcasts or at the sharedmic.blueberry.net. And Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Again, that's the sharedmic.blueberry.net. I hope you enjoyed this Baltimore Stallions episode of the Two and Out CFL podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. 
Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.